from the walk-in closet in my guest bedroom on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison. And before we get started, I want to remind everyone that I am not a lawyer and not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I could bring lawyers to the show and they will probably also tell you not to treat anything they say as formal legal advice. And with me today, we have a very special guest, Rob Chestnut, who is the Chief Ethics Officer of Airbnb. Uh, Welcome to the show, Rob. Andy, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background. How did you get into being the chief ethics officer at Airbnb? Um, I, I'm from the East Coast originally, I'm from Virginia. And, uh, you know, when I got out of uh, law school, I uh, went to work as a federal prosecutor. Wow. Okay, great. And then you've served as general counsel for a few other tech companies along the way? Actually, a number of your students may, may know my last company. I was the general counsel at Chegg. And then uh, general counsel at Airbnb. And you know what? It's interesting. While I was the general counsel at Airbnb, I really noticed the world changing. It it took a number of different forms. One form, I suppose, is tech lash. Uh, Tech companies used to be the darling. uh, But uh, about five years ago, they started coming under a, a much harsher scrutiny and criticism. Leaders started coming under a much uh, heavier criticism. Me too emerged. And it struck me that the world's expectations of companies and leaders was evolving. And more and more, we want and need companies and leaders of companies to take responsibility for solving some of the world's greatest problems. And we were no longer going to accept bad behavior. And that struck me when I was general counsel as a big legal risk for any company. So I I started thinking about, well, if you're, if you're a leader in a company, what do you do to protect yourself? Or the more fundamental question, how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? And that, that sort of led me on, the, on a journey where I decided, you know what, I actually find this more interesting than being a lawyer after 30 years. So um, that's where I've decided to focus my time now. And now you're chief ethics officer at Airbnb. That's right. Yes. So um, let's talk about that integrity question. The, the way our show is usually structured, we have some kind of case that we bring up that poses an interesting moral challenge. Um, and you, you've written this book. Uh, it's called Intentional Integrity, correct? Right. And what's the subtitle there? The subtitle, and for those of you who are, are listening in, uh, I'm, I'm now holding up a copy of Intentional Integrity, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution. And we're in interesting times here as well. So as on the day of this recording, uh, about half the world is under some kind of lockdown or shelter in place order. I just saw that on the New York Times. And I think all but 10 states here in the United States have some kind of shelter in place or lockdown orders. And so uh, Rob and I are actually doing this remotely over a Zoom recording. Rob is in his home. Where's your home now? My home is in Santa Cruz, California. And here I am in Greencastle, Indiana. Uh, so, but Rob, we have the this case study approach. And at the beginning of your book, instead of doing a case, there's really just a family of cases that I think raise interesting challenges. And it's really just the sheer number of scandals that that large companies have been been having. So, do you just want to give us a, a couple of those that sort of drove you to think that we need to be thinking about this concept, intentional integrity? 
Yeah, I mean, the great thing about ethics is that you don't have to be terribly creative. The world brings you so many great examples every day of, of ethical challenges by companies that, you know, you, you just simply have to pay attention. I, and, and there are so many. I, I think the one that really hit me, um, that, that got me thinking really was what Uber was going through. Because Uber's right down the street from Airbnb. And you know, there, there are a number of folks, you know, I had friends that work at Uber. And I noticed that they started, uh, they, they started having a number of challenges around, um, well, first with the famous Susan Fowler blog, you know, that, that, um, where she spoke up about sexual harassment with, within, uh, within the company. And you know, the, sexual harassment for me is one of the, the more insidious uh, ethical uh, it, dilemmas in that I think all of us can agree that it's wrong. So it, it's not gray like a number of ethical issues, but it is, uh, it's a real challenge to, to deal with because it's based in power um, and an inequity in power between two people. And that makes it hard to detect. So often it's the sort of thing that goes on quietly in you know, undetected in conference rooms or even outside of the office. And the power dynamic makes it so that people who are victims are really reluctant to come forward. Uh, and, and so, that's one of the things that you know the world is still working on, to be honest with you. And can, how can we make victims more comfortable? And how can we get this sort of thing out of the workplace? Because it it can destroy careers, destroy lives, wreck brands. Certainly. So it's something that you know we we do a lot of thinking about. And your approach or or your strategy uh, that you think companies would benefit from is this notion called intentional integrity. Can can you talk me through the basics of what this concept is? The whole process, when I when the problem started coming up at Uber, um, and I started wrestling with the question of how do you drive integrity into the culture of a company? The first thing I thought about, well, well what do companies do now? Right? And what have I done at other companies? And uh, I thought, well, you start with a code of ethics, right? You start with a code of conduct. And most companies get their code of conduct from their law firm. Law firm emails them a code of ethics. You stick your logo on top of it. You know, maybe if you want to save money, you download another company's code of ethics off the internet. Uh, the irony of that is pretty interesting. You, you, and then you email it out to everybody. And you say, hey, check this box and say that you've read it and you agree to follow it. And then, you know, thank goodness that's the end of that. But in reality, everybody knows that most people aren't going to read it. And all you're doing is protecting yourself legally. So what else do you do? Well, there are these great compliance posters that people put in the break rooms of offices. Four-point font. Usually it's a dark area near pipes. Um, no, you never would see anybody actually reading the poster. You know, if, if a group of people crowded around the poster and started reading it, I think the legal department would have a heart attack. Nobody reads those posters. Then you have the sexual harassment videos, the hour or two-hour long videos that you uh, send out a note about and everybody in the company's got to watch them. They check and make sure that you finish the video. Um, some third party produces it. And these are the things that companies do to drive, quote unquote, drive ethics into the, into the company. And it struck me, you know what? You can't outsource integrity. You, know, you, can't, you, you can't get somebody else's code of ethics, somebody else's break room poster, somebody else's video and have an impact because everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows that you're doing it because you've got to do it, not because your heart's in it. And so what's the alternative? Well, if you, ca if you want to capture people's hearts, you need to, to embark on a course where 
you send a strong message, a human authentic message from the leadership of a company that integrity really matters. So we, you know, at Airbnb, we actually started thinking about this. What would you do if you really meant it? So the first thing you know, the, that we do is we start with a code of ethics, but not somebody else's code of ethics and not something that one person goes off, you know, like, like Moses going to the mountain and coming back with stone tablets of commandments, but with a group of people, cross-functional, diverse group that tries to capture the culture of a company and the values of a company in a document that really reflects what that company is about and is personal to that company. And can I, can I interject and in, in... Presumably, I mean, sometimes companies could have values that are a little twisted. So you mean like sit down and figure out what the values really ought to be if we want to be a company that values good conduct and behavior? Y yes, companies' values can be twisted, but that re that's the second problem. And the second problem is when you put together a code of ethics that reflects what you think a company's values should be, it doesn't do you any good at all unless the CEO and the top leaders of a company embrace it. Of course. So you can spend all the time you want building a great code of ethics and talking about how you want a company to have integrity. But everybody knows that it um, doesn't mean anything unless the CEO embraces it personally, both in words and in deeds. So if a leader of a company is not going to be uh, committed to a path of integrity, then you're wasting your time and you will not have a culture of integrity. So you, you, you put together a code of ethics and you sit down with the leadership of a company and say, look, here's what we think. This is what we want to be about as a company. This is what we think we should be about or are about. But look, if, uh, if you all aren't embracing it, then there's no need to go any further. I'll give you an example of what we did at Airbnb. Um, in dealing with sexual harassment, it really struck me that companies get themselves in trouble when senior leaders of a company are engaging in romantic relationships with people in the company. The imbalance of power um, is a huge problem. Um, it also creates an atmosphere where people don't trust the leaders anymore because everybody thinks the leader is looking out for their relationship, not the company. So I went to the, uh, the leaders of Airbnb. I mean, I'm on the, I was on the leadership team as a general counsel. I walked into the room and said, I'm going to propose as part of our code of ethics that any member of the executive team of the company, we should all agree that we will not have a romantic relationship of any kind with any employee or any vendor. We should just agree that that's someplace that we don't want to go, that it's not the right thing for the, the culture of the company. And I, I remember there was silence. Uh, one person said, oh, Rob, we're already all married or in, uh, in relationships anyway. That doesn't really matter. I said, look, from what I'm reading in the news, that doesn't stop anybody. So what we need to do as a group is um, let's make a decision about this. And if we're going to do it, let's all look at each other in the eye around the room and commit that that's the way that we're going to operate. And that's what we did. And we put it in writing. We put it in our code. We then told the whole company that that was part of our code, that that was the way we we're going to behave. And we also knew as a group that if any of us violate that rule, that the junior person in the company wasn't going to be transferred somewhere in order to deal with it, that as senior leaders, we would be held responsible for violating the code in these circumstances. And I think as a result of being intentional about it, and the, by looking at each other in the eye, talking about it, and then putting it out to the entire company in a conversation, um, far less likely that we were going to have any issues. And that, in fact, has been the case. Okay. So it's it's not just 
tacking the rules to the water cooler room or the coffee room. Um, it's developing a set of rules that, that flow from shared, agreed upon internal company values, and then making sure that the leadership is intentional about communicating the importance of these values to the rest of the organization, living out those values, and then holding themselves accountable to those values. One part of what we do is, um, instead of just emailing out the code of ethics, we have a, an orientation program at Airbnb. All new employees spend their first week in orientation. So I went to the orientation committee and said, I want to talk about the code of ethics with the new employees. And uh, I want an hour. And they looked at me like, an hour? You're going to talk to new employees? Wrong. We're, not, we're trying to keep them here. We're not trying to drive them away. And I said, look, I'll put it on me. I'll make it something. And they said, what do you mean? You're going to come in and do it? And I said, yeah, I'm the general counsel of the company. I'm going to personally do all of the training for new employees on ethics. Every week I go in um, and I talk to the employees about it, but I don't, I don't read the rule to them. The way we do it is we, we have just like what you all talk about. We have scenarios, real case studies of things that have happened at the company. And we throw, I throw out the examples and then ask people in the room, do you think this violates our code of ethics? And we have a conversation about whether it does or not and why. And what we found, you know, we do surveys, blind surveys at the end of orientation. After the first month, number one ranked class out of 25 classes in orientation, number one ranked class by the, the new employees was the ethics class. I think the bar was really low. They walk into the room thinking, oh, this is going to be painful. I'm going to have to hear about Aristotle and John Stuart Mill. Not the worst thing in the world. Well, yeah, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a tech employee, it's not something you look forward to. But they said, you know what? I, I've had employees come up to me literally in tears. I had a woman a couple of months ago say to me, Rob, I left my last company because my boss kept propositioning me. And I was too scared to report it. She said, if I had heard at my last company what I heard today, in other words, a strong message from a leader in the company that this sort of thing is important, she said, I'd have reported it at my last company. And she said, you have no idea what it means to me to work in a place that really cares about this stuff. So, you know, it, all you need to do is demonstrate in a personal, human, authentic way as a leader that this stuff matters. Um, and a little bit can go a long way. Now, I, I have a question about uh, this. It's a, kind, it's a rules-based approach. It's a bit more robust than just tacking rules to the wall, but it's still in the rules-based approach family of things. Um, I mean, cases like relationships with coworkers, those are, those are obviously going to be kinds of rules where you think they, they shouldn't ever admit of exceptions, so to speak. But when the list of rules gets really, really long and they start dealing with more mundane things... At one point in your book, you note that, you know, even letting someone use a copier for personal use or something, even those kinds of rules or deviations from the rules should be something that is enforced seriously. And so I'm, I'm sure you've probably had, a, you know, questions like this, like, come on, aren't there going to be some cases where it would be okay for a mid-level manager to make an executive decision like, hey, this, we, we can suspend the rule about this in this particular case because there's some extenuating circumstance. Do you, do you have thoughts about that? I, I'm more a fan of uh, carefully crafting rules that enable 
you, you don't need to suspend the rule. The rule is smart enough that it can anticipate a potential uh, need for an exception. Do you have an example? Yeah. Well, let, let's take um, well, let's take use of office resources for your personal benefit, right? right? So I think in a lot of companies, the immediate reaction would be you may not make use of office resources for your personal benefit, right? The problem with that is that it's not realistic. If every time I send an email, a personal email from my office computer, I'm wearing down the keyboard of the computer and using the office Wi-Fi, right? So is that uh, a dumb rule would require a lot of exception. Instead, why not have a smart rule? So our rule at Airbnb is you may make personal use of office resources um, so long as the impact to the company is minimal. So that way, if you need to run some copies off of the, the office photocopy machine because you're going to your, your child's school board meeting that night, it's okay. You want to grab an iced tea from the refrigerator uh, to drink on your commute home? That's not a problem either. So the rules themselves are smart and flexible to be able to handle the ordinary course of things. However, what they aren't going to do is they're not going to allow you to take office furniture home uh, to, to, to furnish your house with it, uh, nor are they going to allow you to take 10 laptops home to sell them on eBay. And those are the sorts of situations that, that will happen, but you, need to, you obviously need to be able to enforce. That's theft. Minor stuff like that can be handled with a smart rule. Okay. And so that, that's interesting. And I'm, I'm interested in this too, because in light of the coronavirus, Airbnb just went through this thing where there was a deviation from a policy and the hosts got upset and then Airbnb responded in a particularly interesting way. So the there was a change to the cancellation policy and, well, and let's be again let's be let's yeah. be careful about the wording on this because yeah, yeah, yeah. the original policy was if a host would like a host could set a a cancellation policy that basically said this reservation is not cancelable. Okay? However, that same policy also gave the authority to Airbnb to even cancel those reservations in quote unquote extenuating circumstances. So what Airbnb did is Airbnb didn't change the rule. What Airbnb said was a global pandemic that is threatening the entire world's population and creating travel lockdowns making it illegal for some people to travel or unhealthy or unsafe to travel, that's an extenuating circumstance. So it wasn't, really, it wasn't a change of a rule. It was the recognition that a, an extenuating circumstance clause in the rule uh, did apply. This, so this is interesting too. Um, and, and then Airbnb, but they did respond that the hosts took issue with it. They weren't, they weren't being reimbursed for their expenses. And, and what did Air, Airbnb recently uh, enacted some policies, correct? Let me set up a slightly broad, the broader context for it and then describe it. You know, a, a lot of companies have historically had what's called a single stakeholder approach. And that is companies, under this theory, companies have one obligation to one group, and that is they have an obligation to their shareholders. Do what's right to the shareholders and you're going to be fine. The problem with this approach is that you will do things in the short that are short run good for the stock price but they may not be good for the world at large for example it might be fine for you to have a factory that pollutes the air right and even endangers your employees with unsafe working conditions but worrying about the air or worried about your employees health would cost money 
and hurt shareholders. So don't worry about it. Airbnb's approach, and this is an approach that is now, which I think in the last several years, starting to take hold, is that companies have broader obligations than just a short-term approach to shareholders. They have an obligation to a variety of, of stakeholders, including their customers, their employees, and the world at large. So now let's go back to this example. Okay. Um, Airbnb decided that guests, if they could not be refunded for these trips, what would that do? Well, that would encourage the guests to travel, even though it might not be safe. That would encourage the spread of the virus and be bad for communities and be bad for the world. So looking at this from the stakeholder of communities where we operate, it's not good to encourage guests to travel under these circumstances. And by the way, nor is it a good thing for guests to be forced to lose money for a trip that they cannot, in some cases, legally even fulfill. So looking at this from the perspective of guests and communities, the right thing to do was to, to, to take the extenuating circumstances policy and apply it. Now, does that hurt hosts? Absolutely, it hurts hosts, because hosts are, in many cases, counting on this money. And does this hurt Airbnb? Sure, it hurts Airbnb's shareholders, because the, the trip is canceled. Airbnb doesn't make money. They don't make fees. But Airbnb still decided it was the right thing to do, balancing the interest. But what Airbnb went further and did was said, you know what, we want to do something for hosts because hosts are important stakeholders. So what Airbnb has pledged to do is spend $250 million helping to reimburse hosts for some of the expenses that they incur due to all of the canceled reservations. So I think that's, a rec that's not good for shareholders, but it's good for an important group of stakeholders, which is the host. Something that comes out of this, and I think this is a tension in ethics generally, where you, you have a tension between having, and, and probably in law as well, where you have a tension between very, very precise, specific rules or laws or ethical principles, and, and the more precise and specific they get, uh, the more it's going to look like, well, you might be able to find cases where there might be an exception. And so you need to build in terminology that's flexible and to some extent ambiguous, right? So A little bit, although, look, I, I, I spent some time with Dan Ariely. I don't know if uh, you're familiar with Dan. Dan Ariely is a behavioral psychologist at Duke University. And Dan's famous. He's written a number of books and even has a movie called Dishonesty, which I highly recommend. He studies dishonesty. He studies the, the science and psychology behind why people lie and why people do bad things. and. What, what Dan taught me was that everybody wants to feel good about themselves. Everybody wants to act in a way that makes them feel good as a human being. Like if I go to a room of people and said, how many people in this room have integrity? Everybody will raise their hand because we're easy on ourselves in that sense, right? We, because we all see the world through our own eyes. We all see and, and can justify our actions because we are biased toward ourselves. So a world where the rules are vague or where there are no rules, where all of us are free to act in a way that we think is right, leads to a lot of problems because we all are going to do things that are in our self-interest. Ambiguity and silence uh, are breeding grounds for ethical problems. Right. So the more that you can give guidance to people that's specific enough so that they understand what the norms are, 
the better. So let me give you an example. Um, I walked into uh, Trader Joe's to do a little shopping. And one of the things I was, sh I was looking for was hand sanitizer. You can't find hand sanitizer anywhere. You can't find it online. You can't find it in stores. Completely gone. So there's a guy standing who works at Trader Joe's who was unloading a pallet uh, of some other item. And I said to him, hey, you don't have any hand sanitizer, do you? Knowing what the answer would be. Only he shocked me. He looked at me and said, you know, I think we just got some in. I'll be right back. Go, he leaves me. Comes back, puts down a case of 48 bottles of hand sanitizer. Now, they're small bottles. They're little two-ounce bottles of hand sanitizer. Two bucks each. Looks at me. Store's about to close in five minutes. Looks at me. He knows what's going through my mind, and I know what's going through his mind. How many bottles is Rob going to buy? And he walks off. What's the ethical, you know, what's the right ethical answer? Should I buy one? Because there's just one of me. They're small bottles, though. One bottle won't last that terribly long. I've got several kids, wife. Should I be getting them for a family member? What about my next-door neighbor who gets the mail for me when I travel sometimes? Should I pick up a couple bottles for her, too? Um, you know what? I'm running a little low on toilet paper. What a great barter item that would be for somebody that's got literally a walk-in closet full of toilet paper right now. I could trade. That's right. Fairness, right? Or maybe I should buy all 48 bottles and drop them off at the local retirement home because they probably need it more than I do, and they're at greater danger. So what do you do in a circumstance like this? In that circumstance, any one of those options I just laid out for you is arguably ethical, depending on your perspective. We could, all, we could each make an argument for it. What's a better approach? The best approach. The best approach is for Trader Joe's to put up a little sign and say, limit two bottles per customer, uh, because that way we can uh, ensure that the, these things get spread around. So when the person in charge like that sets up a rule, that way we all follow it. It actually works a lot better. Back to the like the little like the the ambiguous words like extenuating circumstances. Even in a two bottles per customer rule, I mean, I could imagine someone being like, "Hey, uh, I have an at-risk uh, person. We think they are sick. We've got other people who are at risk in the home. Could we get three or four? And you might you might have extenuating circumstances clauses even in there. And it I didn't mean I don't think this is a criticism of the intentional integrity model. What I wanted to ask you is, do you think Beyond having clear rules, beyond having leadership who uh, exemplify those rules, that you might need some other kind, you might need to look for some other kind of soft skill in your leaders who, who are good at sort of reasoning through those gray areas. When, you know, what counts as an extenuating circumstance? What counts as an unusual exception? You know, when you, when you build in that kind of gray language, do you think your leadership is going to need something more or companies need to be looking for something more in the leaders they hire? Yeah. It, what, what you're looking for, I think, is leadership that recognizes integrity as important. What, where I think you end up with problems are people who don't think about it at all and don't recognize it as a value and something you bring to the table. So what I, I would look for are leaders who recognize that integrity is important to the business 
important in their lives and make an honest effort with self-awareness to try to follow that path of integrity. But yeah, of course you're right. There are always going to be challenges. They're always going to be gray. Having a process where you can resolve the gray in a way that, uh, that makes sense that uh, isn't too biased. I'll give you an example of how we do it at Airbnb. We have a program called Ethics Advisors. Okay, So in, instead of just Rob, the chief ethics officer, being the judge in the robe that makes all the ethics decisions, look, I'm biased too. I, I have a particular background. I have a particular culture that I grew up in. Who's to say that my ethical approach is any better than anybody else's? So what we've done is we've created a diverse group of ethics advisors. There are about 30 of them all around Airbnb. Um, they've got day jobs. They're engineers, they're in marketing, they're in sales, they're in customer service. But we give them a couple of days of training. They volunteer their time to be like ambassadors to the ethics program. Uh, coworkers know that this is their ethics point person. They can go ask ethics questions to the ethics advisors. And when we get gray issues that come up, Instead of just one person making the decision, we send out an email to the ethics advisors and say, hey, here's the question that's come up. What do you all think? And we get input from a number of folks. Often there's a consensus. And when there's maybe not a consensus, that might be my final decision to make. But I can make it considering the, the input from a number of different uh, people inside the company. And I think it's a better informed decision because of that. Uh, that's a very interesting approach. So you, you, you basically, you have a meta rule when the rule is gray or when it seems like you're in exception territory. Or when you haven't been smart enough to think of a rule in the first place yeah, and yeah. something happens. Yeah. Th then you have a kind of process or a procedure, almost like a mini constitutional convention. Okay. Let's everybody get together and figure out, uh, does the, does our concept of extenuating circumstance apply here and just make sure you bring in as many stakeholders as possible to have that conversation. And you make the decision with transparency and the person making the decision uh, shouldn't be the one who has a personal stake in the outcome. So far, we've talked about two components to the intentional integrity model, this more robust approach to drilling down the rules throughout the organizational culture. You've mentioned a, a stakeholder-based approach as opposed to a shareholder-based approach. Is it fair to say that there's a kind of overarching piece to this as well, which is the, the end game is to establish trust? Uh, you, you mentioned that kind of early in the book, that, that part of what, what, what role does trust or cultivating trust play in your intentional integrity model? It, it, fascinating. There's a, there's a study called the Edelman Trust Barometer. It's, it's widely recognized, I think, is the, uh, the best way for uh, the world to to understand trust. Uh, the, the barometer goes out and interviews tens of thousands of people all around the world to get their perspective on um, various institutions. How much do people trust government, religion, nonprofits, and corporations? The, the 2020 Edelman Trust Barometer just came out. It shows an all-time low in trust across the board. You know, to, to exaggerate a little bit, nobody trusts anybody. Uh, and, and that is, I think, that it makes it harder for the world to operate if we don't have confidence in our government, in our social organizations, and in companies. We've got big problems as a world. We need to be working together 
we need a high level of trust, I think, in order to work together effectively. And I think companies have to play a big role in solving these problems. By following an approach of integrity, you will build trust. Uh, in fact, the Edelman Trust Survey uh, specifically talks about to build trust, where do people look to? Three to one, more important, three times as important as competence is ethics or integrity. So the message is if you want to build trust, don't simply focus on showing that you're competent at something. That's a factor. But far more important is to demonstrate that you have integrity in the way that you act. If we can build integrity as a muscle in companies, I think we are, uh, we are building a superpower, really, that can enable us to, to more easily solve some of the world's biggest challenges. So um, I'm interested in this comparison between large companies or large organizations and cities or counties or states. Um, and as you mentioned, people are, their trust is declining in, in some of these traditional institutions. And, and you might think that part of the reason that trust is declining is they think their voices aren't really mattering in the process anymore. They, they've lost faith in our electoral process. They, they think that the people in charge are really just sort of out to use the political leverage that they have for personal gain. I wonder um, why they would think that. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that I think influences trust or lack of trust has to do with do people think they have a voice in some way, shape, or form? And are their interests really being taken into account? Now, flip it to a company that's trying to implement the intentional integrity model. You mentioned in your book that companies can be a bit more nimble than, you know, bureaucratic institutions. But do you think part of that nimbleness comes from, historically, they've been able to just sort of like blindly follow a shareholder model? Do you think the more stakeholders you bring... Is that going to make companies be less nimble, less agile? Uh, do, do you see any kind of tension there? I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I think, well, I think companies have a natural advantage over government in, in, when it comes to being nimble. Look, you know, governments are, by definition, um, fractured right, by politics. And even when there's a unitary leader, there is a substantial body that seems to be constantly speaking out against the leader and pushing the other way. So by definition, companies are more unitary. They have a single vision and a single purpose. And presumably most people who work at the company buy into the mission and buy into the values of the company. But everyone's united behind a single purpose, right? Now, the multi-stakeholder approach means that it's a little more complicated for the leader. I think being a leader is harder now than it was before. So now you've got to take into account not just your short-term stakeholders, your short-term shareholders, but a variety of stakeholders. Still, there's a consistent theme and a unitary purpose going on here, and that is what's the purpose of the company. So I, I think companies are well-resourced compared to governments, it seems. Um, they have a unitary purpose, can move faster, and therefore I think have such a potential to have a positive impact on the world. But I will grant you that it's a little more, it's more complicated now for a leader uh, because now they're thinking about not just shareholders. Well, and I was wondering, uh, does a company get so large and does their impact on society become so widespread 
that there are so many stakeholders that you don't get and if you and if you take all the stakeholders seriously right if you if they're if you're genuinely taking their interest into account and not just paying lip service to it do you get something analogous to it gets very political right suddenly you know um it's not just like take Airbnb it's not just your employees and your shareholders and the hosts you know it's now neighborhoods who are worried about pricing uh, and how this is impacting their community and so i'm starting to wondered could it get as fractured that, that was sort of my question yeah i i think that even though you have multiple stakeholders um still at its heart um there's a there's a single unitary purpose and a single unitary leader without a an opposition so much within the company that i think gives it an advantage but sure the bigger you get uh the more complicated it gets but there's you know look uh, that's a good problem to have well i thank you for your time rob is there anything you want to tell us about the book? The book is called Intentional Integrity. Uh, you can go pre-order it right now on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I love independent bookstores. There are a number of independent book outlets um, where you can, you'll can you be able to get the book. Uh, it'll be available widely. The publication date is, right, is the end of July. Although, again, with the virus, uh, it, it, everything's flexible. Uh, but you can keep up with information on the book by going to www.intentionalintegrity.com. You can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Rob Chestnut. You know, look, I, I appreciate the focus that schools are putting on um, ethics and business. Uh, I, I think it's an important part of having a positive impact on the world. So I, I thank you for your time today. Well, I thank you for your time, Rob. And again, we've been speaking with Rob Chestnut, the Chief Ethics Officer at Airbnb. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email our producer, Catherine Barry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work. Uh, Rob, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Take care, Andy. Hi, everyone. We'll be back next time talking about the ethics of working from home during the COVID-19 pandemic. We've already had some great questions. So if there is something that strikes you as a tricky moral situation in this new work reality, send it to us and we'll see if we can help you figure out how to get it to work. And if you wanna learn more about what Rob and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org backslash get ethics to work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is the best place for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.